You will find my text this morning in the epistle of Paul to the Galatians. The book of Galatians, chapter 4. Galatians, chapter 4, and verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We have begun a series of sermons on the basics of the gospel. Let me remind you that when we began that series two weeks ago, I said there is only one place to begin. We begin with God. God himself, not with man and his need, great as that is, we begin with God. And so we considered two weeks ago the holiness of God. He is absolutely and utterly holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That led us on inevitably to consider last week man's sinfulness into what a terrible state and condition sin has brought man. Man in his sin is guilty before God, depraved, uh, powerless and dead, spiritually dead. Woe is me, for I am undone. And that leads us inevitably today on to consider the coming of Christ, God's remedy for man in his sin. The coming of Christ, our subject this morning, is the glorious mystery of the incarnation. God becoming man, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. I trust that you notice how we are proceeding step by step. One step, one study leads on inevitably to the next. After each sermon, I don't have to sit down and think, where do we go from here? There is really only one place to go. In the light of the doctrine of God's holiness and man's sinfulness, it is inevitable that when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Very well then, we take our text and look at it section by section. First of all this, when the fullness of the time was come. When the fullness of the time was come. What does this mean? It simply means when the appointed time was come. The Appointed time when God's appointed time came he took this action the sending of his son into the world now my friends isn't there something wonderfully comforting about this the sending of Christ into the world the providing of a saviour was not a response on God's part to some unforeseen emergency an afterthought on God's part. 
There are no afterthoughts with God. Before this world was made, before anything at all was created, before time was, God planned and decreed the sending of his Son into the world. The salvation of the people of God was determined and decreed by God himself before time began. And when the fullness of the time was come, when God's appointed hour struck, God sent his Son into the world. But we can explore this a little more deeply, a little further. Why was it that that particular time, that point in history some 2,000 years ago, was God's appointed time. The great philosophers of Greece had come and had gone. Those men, Socrates and Plato and the others, were the most brilliant, the greatest philosophers that this world had ever seen. Those pagan philosophers. It had been clearly demonstrated to men that human philosophy, so brilliant though it was, could not save them. Those outstanding men, those great philosophers, those great geniuses, they had asked all the ultimate questions concerning death and life, but they had been unable to come up with any certain answer. In the wisdom of God, the utter bankruptcy of human philosophy even at its greatest uh, it was de demonstrated the utter bankruptcy of human philosophy its bankruptcy of saving power it was demonstrated in the wisdom of God that human philosophy even at its best was bankrupt of saving power it could not save then too the great empire of Rome had done its work that great empire had conquered and subdued the whole of the known world of the time. It had established conditions of peace throughout its vast empire. The Pax Romana reigned throughout the great Roman Empire. And not only that, the empire had constructed a marvellous network of roads. Such were the conditions that there was never a time more favourable for the spread of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ but more important still the children of Israel the Jewish people had had the law God's law now for some 1300 years since the time of Moses and uh, the, those Jews, most many of them, many of their religious leaders had taken the view that they had in themselves the power to keep that law and so save themselves. We're always so ready, aren't we, to complain that we don't, we haven't been given enough time to prove ourselves. Well, God gave to those Israelites some 1,300 years and surely it was amply demonstrated by then that the law cannot save that by the deeds of the law by the works of the law 
There shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. All man's efforts to save himself have been shown to be totally and utterly futile. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that man can do to save himself. Then, when the fullness of the time was come, when God's appointed hour arrived, God put into operation his master plan. When the fullness of the time was come. But then we move on and we notice secondly in our text that it says God sent forth. God sent forth his son. This tells us two truths. We learn from this two important truths. First of all this, that when Jesus Christ came into this world, he came with the Father's authority. God sent him forth. The whole grand plan and scheme of salvation is of God. God planned it. God purposed it. God decreed it. God sent forth his Son. It is not that by his coming into this world that Jesus did something that persuaded God to love us. That's a caricature of the truth of the gospel. That is a travesty of the truth. It is because God loved sinners that he sent his son into this world. He sent his son into the world in his great and marvelous and everlasting love to turn away from his people his own, the Father's wrath. In his love he sent him to do that. Jesus Christ came into this world with the Father's authority. God sent him forth. And this tells us, secondly, this great truth. The truth of Christ's pre-existence. Christ's pre-existence. God sent forth his Son. He sent him forth from a place, from the place where he was before. When a child is born into this world, or should I say when that child is conceived in his mother's womb that is the beginning of his existence previously he has had no being at all no existence whatsoever but it is not so with Jesus Christ his conception in the womb of Mary and his birth in Bethlehem were but his becoming man were but his taking to himself human nature he existed with the Father before that. He existed with him from all eternity. Jesus Christ is eternal. He is everlasting. He uh, is everlasting. There never was a time when he was not. He always was with the Father. Before time began, before the worlds were made, Christ was. Before ever time was, Jesus Christ is. Christ the Son is. Before his birth or before his conception, he was eternally with the Father. Always there. His pre-existence. The Bible teaches this so very plainly. 
John begins his great fourth gospel by telling us in the beginning was the word the word is Jesus Christ another name for the Lord Jesus Christ in the beginning was the word and the word was with God before ever he was born there in Bethlehem he was with God with the father he was there with them in the beginning that means at the beginning of the world and before ever the world began at all that means at the very beginning it means before ever anything began at all because of the limitations of human language it has to be put in this way in the beginning from all eternity Christ was with the Father we were reading in Philippians chapter 2 a very famous passage concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the Apostle Paul says there that he being in the form of God and thinking it not robbery to be equal with God made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. That's what happened when Jesus was born. He took upon him the form of a servant. Before ever that event occurred he existed in the form of God being in the form of God. He's eternally God. But at that point in time, he, the eternal son, took upon him the form of a servant. He was always with the father. His pre-existence, God sent forth. First of all, when the fullness of the time was come. Secondly, God sent forth. And now thirdly, we notice this phrase, his son. His son. God sent forth his son. Jesus Christ is the son of God. He is God the son. He is divine. He is fully divine. He is God. He belongs to the Godhead. He is the second person of the Godhead. There is nothing. Nothing in all Christian doctrine and teaching. That is more utterly basic than this nothing there is no religious group anywhere that denies the full deity of our Lord Jesus Christ that has any claim or title to the name of Christian that is why it is completely wrong for us to think of people like the Jehovah's Witnesses as a, a Christian group they deny the full deity of Christ and cannot be called Christian at all there is, I repeat, nothing, nothing that is more completely and utterly and absolutely basic in the Christian doctrine or teaching than this, that Jesus Christ is God. The Bible calls him God. Some 800 or so years before ever he was born, his birth was foretold, his coming was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. And he says there in Isaiah chapter 9, he is the mighty God. That's what you can read there in Isaiah 9 verse 5, the mighty God. Let me remind you again of what I quoted from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And that verse goes on, and the Word was God. The Word, Christ, and God are identified. The Word was God. God don't let the Jehovah's Witnesses take you in 
by telling you that that should be translated the word was our God there is no competent Greek scholar anywhere that will agree with that translation the Bible says the word was God the Apostle Paul says quite categorically in Romans chapter 9 that he is Christ overall God blessed forever Christ who is overall God blessed forever and there are many other texts I could quote for you in which Jesus Christ is called God a famous translation of the Old Testament into Greek was made some 200 or so years before Christ's birth we call it the Septuagint because it was a translation made by some 70 scholars in the city of Alexandria that translation in that translation the word for God the great word Jehovah the great Old Testament name for God the divine name is invariably translated by the Greek word kurios Lord and in the New Testament when the men who were used to write the New Testament wrote those great books that make up our New Testament they took this word kurios and it's the word that they used to refer to the Jesus Christ they called him Lord to reuse that word over and over again of him eh, the very word that was used of Jehovah himself in the Old Testament would in their eyes be terrible blasphemy were he not we read that he had no need that any man should testify to him concerning man for he knew what was in man you see he's all-knowing he's omniscient as we say he knows everything he knows everything about us he knows whatever is in man he knows everything about you and about me and about every other human being on the face of the earth he's all-knowing he's all-powerful he's omnipotent as we say he said himself concerning his resurrection that he would take his life I have power he says to lay it down and I have power to take it again usually the New Testament refers to the resurrection as the God the Father's raising of his son but here in this text the Lord Jesus Christ says that he takes his life the resurrection takes his life again the resurrection is attributed to himself to the son I have power to take it again the New Testament tells us that he is able to subdue all things to himself he's all power and not only that but he's everywhere he's omnipresent as we say in technical theological language he's everywhere Jesus spoke to Nicodemus one night and he said to him no man has ascended up into heaven but he that came down from heaven even the son of man who is in heaven the son of man is himself that's a divine title here there he was the Lord Jesus Christ in a room in Jerusalem one night speaking to Nicodemus and he says I the son of man am in heaven even the son of man who is in heaven no human being can be in two places at the one time but this is God this is God the son he can be there in that room in Jerusalem speaking to Nicodemus and he's in heaven as well he's everywhere all the attributes of God that is 
everything you say of God you can say of him for he is God it's clear too that he is God from the mighty works that he does and that he has done he is the great creator that same great chapter John chapter 1 says all things were made by him without him was not anything made that was made only God can create you and I can make certain things if we have the proper materials and the needed skill but we cannot create make something out of nothing all things were created by him and not only that he upholds all things in him everything coheres in him all things consist the Bible says this whole marvelous universe of ours would collapse in utter chaos were it not for his upholding does that not tell us that he is God then too he forgives sins only God can forgive sins he said to the paralytic who was let down by his four friends through the roof in Capernaum so he lay there at Jesus feet in that house in Capernaum he said to him son your sins are forgiven you for someone who is mere man to say that would be terrible blasphemy those Jewish religious leaders the scribes and the Pharisees thought that it was blasphemy for they considered him a mere man they said he's making himself equal with God most certainly he was for he is God equal with the Father in power and in glory his mighty works he can give rest to men from any corner of the world from to men and women who come to him he could rise and issue this great invitation come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest any person who issued such a statement promising universal rest rest to any who came to him would be either a madman or an imposter or a person suffering from terrible delusions of grandeur were he not God Jesus Christ could issue such an invitation because he is God his mighty works and then too the New Testament shows him to us as an object of worship only God is to be worshipped when he showed to doubting Thomas one of his disciples the scars on his hands and on his side Thomas immediately responded with worship my Lord and my God he declared the dying Stephen the first Christian martyr cried out Lord Jesus he cried out as he was dying Lord Jesus receive my spirit he addressed prayer to Jesus only to God can one address prayer and Stephen knew that Jesus is God the four and twenty elders of whom we read in Revelation chapter 5 who, whom John saw in his vision before the throne of Christ in heaven those representatives of the whole church from all ages they fall before him and they worship him we are told he is God it would be unthinkable for any Jew to worship any but God in Jewish eyes that would be the most fundamental of all sins and indeed it is the most fundamental of all sins to worship any but God 
this puts it once and forever beyond all dispute that Jesus Christ is God. He is a proper object of worship. You, my friend, are this morning in his presence. Be reverent, humbly and lovingly. Worship him, your Lord and your God. The doctrine of our Lord's full deity is absolutely essential. If he is not fully divine, then you and I have no saviour. It is his deity that gives to his sacrifices great value so that it avails for all who come to Christ in repentance and in faith. Only because he is God. Could he so bear the wrath of God against sin that we might be spared that wrath? It is absolutely essential that our mediator, that our saviour be divine. God sent forth his son. That is who he is, God's son. When the fullness of the time was come, we notice first of all, God sent forth. Secondly, he sent forth his son, thirdly, we notice. And now, fourthly, we notice this phrase, made of a woman, made of a woman. Mary gave birth to Jesus. Jesus took from her all that any child takes from his mother. She is in a full sense, she was in a full sense his mother. What this is telling us is that he is true man. He is human. He is fully human. He has a human nature. He was born a man. The evidence for our Lord's humanity is abundant in the scripture. He grew hungry as you and I grow hungry. He needed to take food as you and I do day by day. He became thirsty as you and I become thirsty. He sat one hot day at midday by the well at Sychar and he asked a Samaritan woman there to give him a drink of cool, refreshing water. He grew physically tired and exhausted as you and I do. We read of him one day being very busy teaching the people and healing and so on. After he had done that, his disciples were rowing him across the lake of Galilee. And in the stern of the boat, he fell sound asleep. He slept so soundly that not even the howling of the wind, the raging of the storm, awoke him. He's mad. He had human emotions just as you and I have. He could weep. He stood and he looked over the city of Jerusalem. And as he thought of the terrible fate that awaited the impenitent citizens of that city, he wept over it. He stood at some distance from the grave of his friend Lazarus, and Jesus wept. There are many Christmas hymns that are noble expressions of biblical truth. I know that, many of them. But there is one popular hymn that is often sung that has these words in it. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. What utter nonsense. You and I should never sing these words. They are not true. 
The little Lord Jesus cried as any other baby cried. He was a normal baby. He became man. He is man. He needed friends as you and I need friends. He craved for human friendship. He loved to be there in the home of Mary and of Martha and of Lazarus. He chose twelve disciples that they might be with him. With them that they might teach them, yes, certainly, but with them that he might have their companionship. How he wanted to have their support and companionship there in the Garden of Gethsemane at the last. How he wanted to have James and Peter and John with him there. He had a particularly close relationship with John. He is that disciple whom Jesus loved, the New Testament tells us. He loved all the disciples, but there was a particularly close relationship with John at the human level. His humanity. And we see his humanity also in that he was mortal. He died. God cannot die. But this is why Christ became man, in order that he might die for us at the cross. He is man. He is God. What a mystery. He took human nature into mysterious union with his eternal divine nature. And he remains forever God and man. He has two distinct natures. They are not mingled or mixed together. Two distinct natures, the human nature and the divine nature. And yet he is not a dual personality. He's one person, one divine person. Many of you learned it in your childhood when you had to learn the answers in the Shorter Catechism. The answer to question 21 is, The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continues to be God and man, in two distinct natures and one person forever. That he should become man was absolutely essential. It was man who sinned. Only man uh, could pay sin's penalty, bear its punishment. Only a man could be our substitute. He's God, he's man. He's the God-man. The fullness of the time had come. God sent forth. He sent forth his son made of a woman and then fifthly we notice this phrase made under the law made under the law gee the man christ jesus was under obligation to keep god's law he was born under the law he was made under the law he had to worship none but the one true god he had to reverence the divine name he had to love his neighbor as himself he was obligated to keep god's law and keep it he did to perfection He was completely sinless, a perfect man without sin at all. He took human nature to himself, but not sinful human nature. He was completely without sin. How terribly important is this doctrine. If he had any sins of his own, then he could not by his death atone for the sins of others. He would have to die for his own sins. He's God. He had to be God, that his sacrifice would be, however, a value in setting people free from sin. He had to be man because it is man who sinned, and he had to be 
sinless man, or he would have to die for his own sins. He was made under the law. He was obligated to keep God's law. But this means something more. It means this. He was duty-bound, with a duty to which he voluntarily bound himself to bear the curse of the law. He stood in the place of others who had broken that law, and he took the punishment due to them. He bore the curse that was due to them that fell instead upon him. He made their doom, our doom, his own. Oh, my friend, don't you see the love of Christ? The perfectly sinless man, Christ Jesus, bore the punishment of sin, the wrath of God, the wrath poured out due to us. He bore it that we might be spared it. He bore it instead of the sinner. As the Negro put it, he died, me no die. He was made under the law. The fullness of the time was come. God sent forth, secondly. He sent forth his son, we notice, thirdly. He was made of a woman, he's human, we notice, fourthly. He was made under the law, fifthly. And then, sixthly, and just in a word, we notice verse five. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Our subject this morning has been the sending forth, God sending forth of his Son, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But why did God the Son become man? Why was he born of a woman and made under the law? It was to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. By the shedding of his blood, he has purchased redemption. He shed his blood to provide redemption for his people, to deliver us, to redeem us, to pay the ransom price that would set us free from our sins. We were thinking last Sunday morning of the terrible effects of sin upon us. Christ came, God sent him forth, that he might deliver us from those terrible consequences of our sins. And those whom he redeems, those whom he delivers, become the children of God. They receive the adoption of sons. They enter into God's family. They become the children of the heavenly king. That is why God sent him forth. And it only remains for me to ask you now, have you experienced this? great deliverance are you a child of God are you one of Christ's redeemed ones are you in the family do you have Christ as your saviour I frequently ask these questions or questions like these at the end of a sermon or in the course of a sermon but my friend are you facing up to those questions Christ is offered to you. How very dreadful it will be at the last. If having had Christ offered to you again and again and again, 
you reach the judgment without him. Oh, my friend, is there any reason? Can you give me any valid reason why even sitting here in this church in Tain this morning, you should not make contact, make saving contact with Christ by faith? I urge you, know that God's Spirit would accompany what I say with his own almighty power. I urge you, be ye reconciled to God. Stretch out the hand of faith and make contact with Christ, the Saviour. Let us pray. We give thanks for thy wondrous love in sending forth thy Son, made under the law, born of a woman. We thank thee that thou didst send him forth to be the sinner's saviour. We pray that we will, as individuals, trust in him, and so rejoice in God's great salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.